Um, I thought I, I thought tonight tonight we're going to be talking all about worship in church history. It's about four thousand years of talking. So, but um, to start off, I found this cool video. This this church kind of did this. They did. 2,000 years of church history in about 10 minutes in this kind of spoken word thing. Trace, so we're going we're gonna to watch a video. Hey, it's raining again. That's awesome. Um, so we're going to watch a video first, and then it's just like 10 minutes, just kind of a, a cool, quick thing, and then I'll talk for a long time. Um, I, I played that just because it touches on a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight, and it did in about 10 minutes, and now I have to talk for about 45. So um, this, that's kind of what we're, we're going to go through tonight, and, and just, um, I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, there's a lot, it's a lot of information, but it, it kind of walks you through just this whole concept of like, there's a whole stream of, of information, of history, and of tradition that that flows um, from, you know, Christ and actually before Christ to where we are today. And um, what we're going to, the reason I wanted to spend some time on, on that is because um, it's for a couple different reasons. One, I, I think it's important to know kind of where, you, where we come from. Um, sometimes we can think that like a worship as we know it in E3 just kind of sprung, you know, f- you know, like, God just kind of put some people with acoustic guitars and uh, drums and, and it all just kind of started that way. But actually, like, everything kind of builds on what goes before. And I thought it'd be interesting to just kind of trace this line, like, all the way back in cer- certain circumstances to, like, before Christ with certain worshiping traditions, even certain things that we still do today. And... Um, and personally, one of the things I really wanted to do with this is also kind of expose some of you guys or talk about some different traditions that have happened in the past because sometimes if you've worshipped a certain way for a long time um, with a certain style, um, you can actually kind of fall asleep sometimes and, and it, it becomes almost stale or it becomes almost rote. And sometimes if you, if you go back in the history of the church, you can learn about some other ways that people of faith have worshipped in the past, and you can actually engage in some of those things, and it's a great way to kind of breathe new life into your, your spiritual life. And um, people are doing this now. Um, I've even attached some stuff to the handouts um, if you Google like pilgrim prayers, like that's really popular right now, where people or Puritan prayers, I'm sorry. Well, people, people are kind of going back and recovering prayers from like the 1600s, um, and to us, it's kind of a strange thing to think about these written prayers. Could they be, you know, could they be um, compelling to us because we're used to praying sort of off the top of our heads, you know? But when you go back and you see like the way these people poured their hearts out to God in prayer, um, I just put one on there as an example. But it's just to kind of remind us that there's this great well of tradition that we can draw on as personal worship, worshipers and, and sometimes as worship leaders to just kind of like, man, I'm feeling like, 
I want to I want to approach God in a new way. It's the same God, but I I want to I want to shake myself up a little bit. And so you learn to engage in a different way of approaching Him, and it can really be like it's like drinking like from a just like a fresh cup of water. And you're like, wow, I, I never understood God that way, or I never experienced Him that way. So um, that's kind of why I, I feel like it's important to to do that, and I do it in my personal life and. I try to do it occasionally here at E3. Um, you, you'll see me occasionally, like I'll bring in a creed or something that's a little bit older. And in fact, we're doing that now with anybody who's coming to the Daybreak stuff or, or who's going to participate in Holy Week next week. Like that's stuff that's from a tradition that's not really typical of E3. Like that's an older faith tradition because um, like a lot of what E3 as an evangelical church, they, they don't do... Um, Lent very, very deeply. They don't do the walk to the crucifixion. But some of these other faith traditions, like, oh yeah, like we we do that, and and it's a it's a valid important thing. So um, we're going to walk through just historically and scripturally, like a bunch of sort of ages or uh, yeah, ages of kind of worship and just kind of what happened in those ages. And I would just you know you can jot down notes on your handout and. Um, and then we'll break up just briefly in a small group. So, like I said, there's a lot of talking, so I apologize. This will be the most talking that I'll do. Uh, and again, I said it earlier, but remember, we're not meeting next week, or the week after. So, okay. So we're going to start off in the first, the first sort of um, worship age in, in Scripture and in history that people will talk about is the age of the patriarchs uh, from 2000 to 1700 B.C., this is Genesis, the beginning of Scripture. So this is Abram, uh, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, kind of that first core group of people. And worship during the age of, pa- of the patriarchs is really characterized by two things. It's really raw, it's really ca- but it's characterized by altars and sacrifices. And so you'll see it go like this. Um, it, God will speak to one of the people and then pretty much what they do is they, God speaks, they build an altar, and offer a sacrifice. Um, kind of a biblical way of putting it is it's revelation. Like God reveals something about himself, and then they respond with altar and sacrifice. Now, an interesting thing about this age is that in this era of history and in this culture, um, the head of the clan, the patriarch, was also the family priest. Like there's, there's no temple there's no priestly kind of class of people. It's just a bunch of guys kind of running around um, the Mediterranean, God speaking to them, and then they basically build this altar and worship God and function sort of that way as in their family too. So they're kind of telling their family about what's going on. But it's very, as you can tell, it's very activistic, you know, and it's very immediate, and there's no... There's no sort of standing back with your arms folded waiting when the band's going to play a good song. It's like God's do, God says something, and then you do this. It's very simple. Um, the next age uh, that emerges is the next, hopefully, the next book of the Bible, um, which is the Mosaic Age. And this is from about 1400 to 1000 B.C. Now, this is the sort of central era for Israel um, because it's the Exodus event. 
this is where really so many things are cemented for Israel. We talked last week about how Passover is just central to Israel's worship and central to Israel's history. And we'll just walk through like a few different ways that this is just absolutely critical for Israel. So first of all, um, one of the key things that happens in this era is that God gives us his name. Uh, and this had not happened, but if you remember the story, like Moses is, is uh, tending some um, flocks and then the, the bush is burning and God calls him over and kind of initiates this relationship and he says, I want you to go you know, lead my people out of Egypt and Moses is hesitant. And if, in Exodus 3, um, verse 13, Moses says to God, you know, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, this is my name forever. And this is my title for all generations. And so that name that we know as Yahweh, like, is like, you know, and I, I think I mentioned last night, like, the Jews uh, don't even, they don't write it, they don't speak it. But that's one of the key things that happens in this era of worshiping, is God gives us, God gives his people his name. And uh, so Moses, you know, gets the people to follow him, they go through the Red Sea. The next really important thing that happens is the giving of the law. And this happens, if you remember the story, also at Mount Sinai. And the reason that's important for us is that worship always happens around God's word as well. It's not just singing, it's not just communion, but the word, and so in this case, the law has always been central to the worship of God. Um, the law is given in Exodus 20. And, uh, and then in Exodus 24, there's still, Moses is still kind of up on the mountain. God's people are down. But uh, an author I was reading recently said that in Exodus 24, we're given the basic elements of structure for every meeting of God's people. Um, there's five of them. So if you look at what happens at Sinai, basically from that point on, every gathering of God's people has some, some kind of configuration of these five elements. One is the meeting is convened by God. God says, assemble Israel. I'm going to give the law. Uh, two, the people are arranged in some kind of, uh, some kind of orderly fashion and they all have a part to play. So basically God says, you know, Moses, you're over here. Aaron, you're over here. The leaders are over here. But everybody has a role in the gathering, in this participation. The third thing that happens is that God then proclaims his word. He gives the law. And um, this is kind of an interesting little aside, but, you know, we know... Um, we know the, the law sort of, or the basics of the law is the Ten Commandments. And I think uh, some, of, some of the language of that, we've lost some of the shock of this. But I was reading a theologian, and he says, like, the language that, that the law is given is so raw and primitive that a lot of times people will call it, it's like, 
it's the ten words. Like we call the Ten Commandments, but, it, but the words are so primitive and, and just right there that it's like, they're, they're little hyphenated words. I mean, it's Hebrew. It's a different language. And it's like, no kill, you know? It's like, no steal. And they're, they're just, and so like sometimes you'll hear the commandments referred to as the Decalogue, the ten words, the ten words. So um, that's the third thing. The fourth thing of the, of the meeting is that there's a renewal of personal commitment. And basically what this means is like Israel accepts the terms of the covenant. Like God says, these are the terms. I'll be your God. You'll be my people if you do this. Israel says, we'll do it. That's personal commitment. And then the last thing is they seal the agreement. And they seal the agreement through blood, through a sacrifice. Now, Obviously, that's filtered through our Christian, you know, uh, filters. Um, but so we no longer have to offer blood sacrifices. Just so you know, there's nothing going on in the back room after worship gatherings or anything. But um, because clearly, like, it, you know, Jesus is once and for all our sacrifice. But up until, this, up until that point, when Israel convened, there was a sacrifice. That sealed the deal, so to speak. Um, so we have the name, the law, and then, and then um, they leave Sinai and they start traveling around the wilderness. And then what God gives them is the tabernacle. Um, and that takes place probably in the, in the next year or so after, after uh, Sinai. And the tabernacle is sacred space. And you can find it, the description of it, in Exodus 26 to 30. And then Exodus 36 to 40 is them basically building it. And it's basically an exact repeat of 26. It's really like God says to do this. And then Exodus 36, they did this. But uh, the, the great thing about this is that the tabernacle, um, God basically says, my glory is going to reside in this place. And... Um, all of Israel camped, when they camped, they camped with the tabernacle at the middle. And that was symbolic of their relationship. It wasn't by chance. It didn't just make good sense. It was symbolic to them of saying, like, our God is central to who we are and what we do, our very existence. We revolve around Yahweh and his dwelling. So, um, and then the last thing that this age kind of gives us is the daily, sort of the sacrificial system of Israel arises. So there's a daily sacrifice of a lamb in the tabernacle. Um, and then to do those sacrifices, God raises up a priest, a class of priests, the sons of Levi, which is where we get Leviticus and the Levitical law. So we go from the age of the patriarchs where it's like, hey, your dad is your priest, to now it's a little bit more like God says, these are the people who can conduct my business in the tabernacle. So, any questions so far? That's the Mosaic age. What? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Um, so moving on, the next sort of age of, of God's people is the Davidic and Solomonic age, which is about 1,000 to 600 B.C. And... Uh, what we see in this era 
are the rise of the festivals of the Jewish year. So there's a bunch of festivals that God ordains. The major ones are Passover, Pentecost, and uh, the Festival of Booths. And they celebrate different aspects of God's, of God's uh, life with Israel. But what, we're really, what I really want to talk about is more David and Solomon, because that's kind of where, it's another big pivot point. Festival of Booths. It's like the Festival of Tabernacles. It's, it's celebrating like God's dwelling with people. Um, so first we have King David, right? Um, David, David does basically two things that I think affect us today. Is that one, I don't even know if this affects us today, but, but David is the first one that kind of says, okay, we need to have some good musicians. So David, as king, ordains a class of musicians, basically to do nothing but play praise music to God and uh, to Yahweh, you know, essentially day and night. Um, sounds like a good gig if, if, you, can, if you could get it. Um, so he does this, and, and, and we're not really sure, actually, interestingly enough, like where the tabernacle has ended up at this point. You know, because like Israel carried it around, but then David becomes king. There's a couple um, allusions to where they think it might be just because of the way Scripture talks about certain things happening in certain areas. But there's no temple yet, um, and so David ha- but David has this sort of dwelling area, and, and basically people are offering praise to God like, you know, sort of 24 hours a day. They're singing songs, so maybe it's not a good gig, because if you got the 3 a.m. shift, that could kind of stink. Um, but then also David also does what? He writes psalms. He writes psalms, which a lot of them are songs, but actually a lot of the psalms are prayers. Uh, we always talk about them as songs, but some of them are, but some of them are, are just prayers. David wants to build a dwelling place for God. He wants to build a temple, but I don't know if you know this in Scripture, but God tells him no. He says, you cannot build me a temple, and uh, it was something that I've overlooked, but does, it, does anybody remember why God says you can't? What's that? He said, you're a man of war. You've, you've spilt too much blood on the land, and you cannot build this temple. And I was like, wow, that's, that's like harsh. But he does tell David, you've got this son, and that leads us to, to Solomon. So um, Solomon builds God's temple. He builds the, the dwelling place for, uh, for the Lord, and you can find... Um, the description of this temple in a couple places, but First Kings chapters 5 and 6, and then in uh, chapter 8. The temple is essentially the tabernacle, but like a hundred times bigger. Um, it is made of the best wood that they could find. It is made of, it is covered in gold. It is designed to not display the image of God, but to display the glory and the beauty of God. It is crafted so that when you walk in there, you feel like you are in a beautiful, sacred space. Um, I've always loved 
um, Solomon's prayer of dedication. And, and I want to read part of this prayer, um, not because it's incredibly significant, but just because I think it's a beautiful thing. In 2 Chronicles, the, the, Sol- the, the temple is done, and Solomon is going to dedicate this temple. And so he prays this big, long prayer that's kind of a reminder of the covenant of like, you know, this is what God said he was going to do, and this is who we are as his people. And then he gets to the end of the, his prayer, and I just want to read this to you. He says, Now rise up, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord, be clothed with salvation, and let your faithful rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for your servant David. Scripture goes on and says, When Solomon had ended his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Can you... Can you imagine? Would that like be a, a morning of church or what? <laughs> um, when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down on the pavement with their knees to the ground and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, and for his steadfast love endures forever. You know, one of my favorite songs is actually uh, the song called Forever by Chris Tomlin. And um, I'm not, um, one of the reasons I love that song is that phrase, his love endures forever. His love endures, is like a key phrase in the life of the church. Um, Israel says it then. Um, They use it as a repeated song. Jesus probably sang it or said it as a prayer at the Last Supper. I think it's, pro- I think it's pro- one of the great, uh, what they call the great Hallels, which if you remember, you know, Hallel is like, you know, praise of God, you know, and they would just say, his love endures forever, his love endures forever. And it's just cool to me to think like, you know, 2009, you know, we still sing songs with the same exact phrases that Israel used when they dedicated the temple. And um, I'm, I'm just kind of geeky like that, but I love things that connect with the past. Yes, Second Chronicles chapter 6. Now before we leave David and Solomon though, there's this other thing, there's this other dynamic that's not so cool, uh, not so nice. Because you know, David and Solomon, as we saw in the song last week, David and Solomon have a lot of children and uh, a lot of line of kings. And most of these kings are not really good guys. And they make a lot of bad mistakes. And... Um, the kings in the, 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 the kingship is increasingly associated with the temple. So, you know, like the temple becomes this political thing. Like kings in Jerusalem, the temple's in Jerusalem, bad kings. And whenever there's a bad king, the temple falls into disuse. You can read it through scripture. Like bad king equals no one caring about the temple. Good king comes in. Oh, we're going to refurnish the temple. We're going to clean it up. The cycle will start all over again. But at the same time, so at the same time you have all these guys uh, over here in Jerusalem, this other group of people kind of start becoming active through history, and they're the prophets. 
They're the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, the Hoseas, the Amoses, you know, and these guys are gifted and sort of prompted by God and also have just the, the, the flat-out courage to go to Jerusalem and go to these kings over and over again and going, you are forgetting the heart of God in your worship. And so they form a really critical part of, the, of our story because they serve, they serve as great reminders as to what's important to God. You know, like um, you can get so consumed with the temple and then you go to somebody like Isaiah and Isaiah is basically like, oh, you know, you know your ceremonies and the bulls that you, you slaughter and everything, Yahweh doesn't care about them because you're forgetting the poor, you're forgetting the orphans, you're forgetting the widows. And that's the role of the prophets all the time that this line of kings is going on. These guys go to speak to them. And so it's this cool dynamic of, of, of you know, ceremony and sacrifice while at the same time these guys saying, this is what's important. Well, the kings kind of go on and then eventually there's this catastrophic, devastating event uh, for, for um, Israel. And they're conquered by the Babylonians. And they're thrown into exile. They're taken into exile. So basically, the, the center of their life, the temple, you know, like the tabernacle was supposed to be the place that they or the temple's gone. It's desecrated. It is destroyed. And they are taken from Jerusalem. So this is devastating to the worship of Yahweh to Israel. There's no temple. There's no sacrifice. God's, uh, this is about 600 to 400 BC, by the way. Um, but God's people are creative. So this is where um, the Jewish synagogue begins to rise up. Um, as we, and, it, and it's still the same basic things, basic elements to a synagogue that we know today. Uh, it rises up because there's no temple. Now, the synagogue has almost a direct lineage to the early church, and we're going to see how that plays out. But basically, this is what kind of starts, this is what is um, dis distinguishable, distinguishing about the synagogue. There's no rituals in the synagogue. There's no sacrifice. Ritual and sacrifice can only take place where? What? Temple in Jerusalem. So there's no ritual. The, the, what happened in the synagogue was basically uh, three things. There was affirmations of faith, there were prayers, and there was Torah, reading and teaching. Uh, the affirmation of faith was what they call the Shema of Israel. And it's got a couple different elements to it, but it's from Deuteronomy. It kind of starts out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And in that culture, that was a big statement because, you know, they, they grew up in like, like a million different gods, you know, like a god for the harvest, a god for a war, a god for marriage, whatever. And the first thing that, that God said is like, no, Israel, the Lord your God is one, one God, one God. And then it goes on, and, and, and um, when Jesus actually says the Shema in the Gospels, yeah, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. 
So that was an affirmation of faith that took place in the synagogue. They would say that. Then they would also have prayers. The prayers were divided into three three parts. Prayers of praise, um, prayers of petitions, and prayers of thanksgiving. Uh, The petitions were asking God for wisdom to understand the Torah. It wasn't like, hey, my my goat fell over and, and broke his leg. It was more like... Prayer, prayer for peace, prayer for understanding, prayer for wisdom. Um, and if you've ever heard anything about Jewish prayers, like we pray like, you know, we pray like this, with, typically with our eyes closed. Jewish prayers were all delivered standing up, like the whole body would stand. And prayers were typically delivered with your arms outstretched and your eyes lifted up to heaven, you know. And that's just a cool image. And, and a lot of times, it's, like, it's one of these things where we think, oh, well, you have to pray with your head down, right? Because then you're not really a Christian if you open your eyes in prayer. I actually heard a guy say that. He's like, I was praying with a guy, and he had his eyes open the whole time. And he was like, I got to pray for that guy's soul. And, um, but uh, um, as I've kind of learned more things about, about uh, just our history of faith, like sometimes I pray with my eyes open. It's just cool. Sometimes it's cool to watch other people pray, just watch God working with other people. And then sometimes I just, you know, look up to the heavens, just like, you know, it's like it's good enough for Jesus. He probably prayed that way. It's good enough for me. Um, and then finally, like the reading of Torah was actually followed by a sermon. You know, they would read the law and then they would, you know, just like they probably had a pastor mark too. And, uh, and they would talk about ways to apply uh, the law to their lives. So that's essentially the exile. The, the Israel is restored eventually. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, there's this, these guys lead a bunch of people back to Jerusalem. But a lot of Jews stay. Oh, they don't all come back to Jerusalem. So we have the synagogue thing that's now going on all over the Mediterranean. And things stay that way pretty much from, you know, 400 all the way up to Jesus, all right? So it's 820, and we are now at Jesus. Um, basically, the temple is still the, the active and the, the center of the sacrificial system. Herod has built a new temple. It's even bigger than the old one. Um, there's a, an, another class of, of people that are a little bit more bureaucratic in the temple, so things are getting a little bit a little bit out of whack um, for the temple in Jerusalem. But again, the synagogues are still present all over the Mediterranean, and we have Jesus. Um, I hope that this isn't going to be controversial, but I want to begin by just kind of noting that Jesus was a good Jew. Um, Sometimes we tend to think that he was just kind of like this you know, almost like this space alien type of person that wandered around Palestine saying these kind of strange sayings. But, um, but he was Jewish, and he was a good Jew. I don't think Jesus personally, I don't think Jesus ever offered a sacrifice at the temple because I think he knew what he had come there for. But we know that he engaged in the festivals. We know multiple times the gospels say he's going to Jerusalem for Passover or for this festival or that festival. We know he was presented in the temple the way a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish baby would be. Um, he went for instruction. We, so, so he worshipped the way first century Jews worshipped. 
except I think for the, for the sacrificial thing. Um, but uh, that's just kind of a side note. Obviously, he goes to the cross, he is resurrected, and now we are into the age of the church. So Pentecost has happened, and we are now in the new era of faith. So we're going to talk right now about sort of the early church, and, um, and this is where things both get really, really fuzzy and really, really interesting at the same time. So um, the first... There's two sort of uh, divisions initially with the first church. You have the church in Jerusalem. And again, like, now not only was Jesus a good Jew, but if you've ever, you know, read Acts, like the first church, they went to the temple every day. So the first church were essentially were good Jews. Going to the temple, offering the prayers that they were been instructed to offer. Um, you had the Jerusalem church, but then you had this other church, or these other small churches, these gatherings, that were gathering in synagogues where they, you know, because they weren't in Jerusalem. So that's kind of how one sort of um, divergent, where divergent paths early on. You had people connected to the temple, people who weren't connected to the temple. These tended to be more like, sometimes more Gentile, more pagan churches, just because they weren't growing up with a bunch of, they weren't at the temple. They had more, you know, more opportunities to invite different people in. So if, if you read like Corinthians, that was written to essentially like a, a sort of a synagogue type church, almost like a house church. Um, but early worship had a two-part structure. And this comes from, um, this comes from first century sources, piecing together just kind of what's written and making some educated guesses. It was basically the word and then communion or the word and fellowship or the word and the breaking of the bread, just to how, however you want to um, characterize it. The word had essentially three parts to it. Um, and I think this is actually in your handout. So don't feel like you have to write all this word for word. I think it's all in the, the back. Um, Readings from the apostles or the prophets, you know, remember the scripture is just kind of being formed right now, so whatever they had, they would read, then sort of a sermon by whoever was leading the church, and then prayers by the people, again, pretty much mirroring the prayers of, a, of the synagogue. So the people all stood, and they would pretty much offer the same types of prayers that were found in the synagogue. This is all they knew at this point. Um, the breaking of the bread, you had the kiss of peace, which we don't really do anymore for obvious reasons, be a little bit awkward. The presentation of bread and a cup of wine to the leader, uh, the Eucharistic prayer, which is just prayers of praise and thanksgiving, and uh, the, prayer, the, the, the leader would kind of pray this prayer, and then people would all say amen, and this amen is one of these other words that we've kind of lost the force of in the church because um, the amen in this context was supposed to be like if do you agree with the prayer I just prayed and if you agreed you said amen and it wasn't like well you know and that's why on Sunday morning I try to try to force that word to into a little bit more of like a, instead of amen you know like it's it was meant to be like an enthusiastic I agree with what you just prayed you know and if you didn't agree you didn't say amen 
um, the reception, the bread and wine is distributed and also taken by the deacons to those who are absent. And then finally, the collection for the poor and needy. Um, so that's really like this first era, first age of the church. Did they sing? They probably sung. We don't really know for sure. I don't see why they wouldn't. But there's no like formalized, hey, you know, this is where the walk-in song happens. And this is, you know, there's lots of scripture that they, they, that they can sort of look at and go like, well, this sort of seems like a song. You know, like Philippians 2, um, you know, where they're kind of like, this kind of seems like it's more lyrical, it's more poetic. But um, no one has, can find like what all scholars would agree on is, a, is an order of worship from the first century church. Yes, Mark. Um, well, no. Because I would be pulling things out of my <laughs> posterior. Um, the love feast, um, I can, I mean, I can definitely look up more of that. I mean, the love feast sort of differed from, differed from um, communion. It's, it's referenced in Jude. It's the only, in the book of Jude, it's the only sort of reference to it in the, um, in the New Testament. So I've heard people talk about it, but it's one of those deals where it's like, there's not a lot of focus on it because it's only referenced one time. But I'd be happy to look, at, look, look it up and uh, talk about it if it's applicable. Okay. Um, but basically, the thing I want to get home is that they, they probably sang, they may have sung. But at this point in the church, it's still focused on prayer and scripture, the word and prayers. And it's still very Jewish. It really, the church remained Jewish until sometime in the middle of the second century. Basically when the differences in, in, um, in you know, recognizing Jesus as Messiah became just unsustainable. And that's when they started getting kicked out of the synagogues or they started leaving synagogues. Interestingly enough, uh, before we leave this, communion and fellowship was also distinctly Christian. So basically, you want to be a part of the synagogue? Yeah, we'll have teaching. Yeah, we'll have prayer. But the Christians then basically were saying like, oh, but Jesus told us that we have to have this meal. And that was a distinctly thing that was just like, okay, well, we have to go do this over here. You know, not that Jews didn't like eating together or that fellowship wasn't a part of their lives, but Jesus commanded it. So the early Christians were like, this is our thing because we're told to do this. So that's where we stand. Um, basically through the second century, the church is now splitting. Um, third century comes, we have uh, the development of the liturgy, more. Um, which is nothing really more than just kind of like, we, we say liturgy and some of us kind of freak out, like what does that mean, liturgy? You know, like saying things and responsive readings and how's that work because aren't, you know, everything's written down already. But the church at this point is still finding out who it is. And I've heard it described once as like, a, it was like communal discovery. So like we think of liturgy as like, like some authority hands a piece of paper to us and says, 
this is, this is the way to worship. This is what you're supposed to follow. But that's not what was happening in the church. Like the church was more like, like you know, like Bonnie would come into my house and maybe she was from a different town and, and, and she's a believer and I'm a believer. And she would go like, well, this is the way, this is what we say. This is how we worship Jesus, this guy named Jesus. And I would go, well, this is the way we do it. And it's kind of the, it's kind of the same, but it's kind of different. But I know, you know, but this guy, named, this guy named Paul said this, and she may go, oh, well, this guy named Peter said this, and they kind of jibe. And since they kind of jibe, well, I guess it's okay. So, like, we think of liturgy as this kind of top-down thing, but actually what's happening right now is, like, it's, a, it's an organic thing where people are agreeing about, like, hey, these words are powerful, and they represent the truth of Jesus. Um, so the church is kind of starting to solidify itself, but... Again, from the ground up, uh, they still stood for prayer. They began to stand now for the readings of the gospel because they're like, wow, like this is the story of Jesus. So as the gospels come in and, and gain sort of cemented form, when they would read, and they still basically, interestingly enough, they still read like from a scroll like the, like the Jews would read. You know, if you've ever seen a synagogue, they have like, you know, the Torah is kind of kept on the little rolls. That's still pretty much what they were doing. Um, but, when, but when they would read the Gospels, the story of Jesus, the place would stand because, like, these are the stories of Jesus. Um, I mentioned a lot of freedom. Interestingly enough, um, anybody could come and hear the prayers. Anybody could come and, uh, and hear the teaching. But when it came time for communion, if you weren't a believer, you had to leave. Like, it was that precious and that intimate and that powerful of a part of the community where it's just like, this is for the faithful only. I don't know how they handled that. It certainly wasn't seeker-sensitive. Um, but that's the way the church was, was growing in this era. And... Um, that brings us to the 4th and 5th century, and I promise it gets faster. I, I, you know, I know we have 1,700 years to go, but um, it does get faster. So in the 4th and 5th century, this is considered really sort of the golden age of the church by a lot of people. Like, this is where the church really emerges as like its full, fully orbed uh, thing. Now, part of that is because Constantine... Uh, they reference him in the video, the emperor of Rome converts. There's a lot of question, was his conversion legitimate or was it political? We don't know. But the bottom line is he makes Christianity the official religion of Rome, which is not a bad thing, especially when you're coming out of an era of persecutions. So, um, so basically the church gets endorsed by the emperor. And you can see this, um, this is a whole separate topic which I'm not going to go into, but if you're into space and architecture, there's this great like just examination of the way the church, way church architecture changes through, through history and how architecture represents what we believe to be true about God. Like we kind of view architecture as this new, n n uh, neutral thing. 
But every time church architecture changes, it's pretty much because some major shift has taken place in our understanding of the way the church should be. And this is no different. Churches now get bigger, you know, because they're not house churches. Churches get a little more grander because now the church is kind of allied with the state again. It's like, hey, we got, we got Constantine on our side. We have the, the Roman Empire on our side. Um, so basically what starts happening in this era of, of, of church worship is that um, culture starts becoming more important. Local culture starts becoming uh, uh, more critical to the church. And, and you see that in that this is sort of the first somewhat major shift in, in division in, after the Jewish split. That you have the Eastern Church and you have the Western Church. And the Western Church is Roman Catholicism, which that's what we know it as today. The Eastern Church really emerges as Eastern Orthodox Church which I think that's, in Mark, that's your tradition, right? Does anybody come from like a Roman Catholic tradition? Yeah, so, so um, I'm going to be speaking just in terms of some somewhat overarching stereotypical forms. So forgive me if I say anything that might be offensive. I don't, I don't mean to. But basically what, what emerges is that the Eastern Church, um, very um, emphasis on, heavy emphasis on beauty, Heavy emphasis on multi-sensory worship, incense, icons. Uh, they built the temp, uh, the the churches they built are designed to try and recreate heaven. You know, not for like, I mean, this they were legitimately just trying. They were doing these as acts of faith. Um, I mean, some you know who who knows what all the motives were, but um, their approach was like you should come to church and feel. Like you are in, like as close to heaven as you can get, okay? Uh, what emerges with, the, with Roman Catholicism, and this may sound strange to some of you who grew up in this tradition, it was, it was a lot more practical because Roman sensibility was like, you go build your basilicas and everything. You go build your, we're going to build roads. You know, like that was what the Roman Empire did. We're going to build roads. And... And the Roman uh, rite or the Roman liturgy really reflected this. It was a little bit somber, a little bit practical, and, um, and it was pragmatic. And it was pretty simple compared to Eastern Orthodox. Uh, well, not East, yeah, you understand. So that's, what's, that's the first major split. And that gains us, I don't know, about 500 years. So <laughs> medieval worship, you still have essentially the same liturgy. You still have the word, you still have the sacraments. There's not a whole lot's changing. But in the medieval age, um, things kind of start to get a little bit out of whack. Um, and basically, the clergy, so the priests and everything, start getting more and more sort of powerful and more and more cemented into kind of what, um, what, they, what they're doing and become more and more distant from the people. Um, the language of the Roman Empire is what? Latin. So you get the mass, the mass, the church, is, is done entirely in Latin. So, you know, say you're a ditch digger in France, 
you don't get, you don't come to church and understand what's going on unless you speak Latin, and chances are you don't speak Latin. So imagine if you, if you come into a thing where you sit and you don't know what's being said, like the sense of sort of mystery starts to rise up, like, you know, what we're doing up here is mysterious because you don't know what the heck's going on. So they're speaking in Latin, and with that, um, worship starts becoming less and less about what the people are doing together. You know, like go all the way back to the patriarchs, you know, God speaks and I do something. Now it becomes more and more about what these guys are doing up here on this sort of platform in a language I can't understand. So I watch and I wonder and I marvel, but participation starts to kind of be replaced by observance, you know? Um, which is one of the things that brings us to the next major, major split, um, and that's the Reformation. And people talk about, I mean, I don't think we can ever understand how huge the Reformation was. The Reformation is when, is when, the, is when basically, like we're Protestants, that's basically where our church was, where our tradition was birthed. We split from the Roman Catholic Church. A group of people basically were like, there's things going on in, you know, things have gotten so sideways in the church that um, we, have to, we, have to, we have to leave the Roman Catholic Church. So at this point, there's only the Catholic Church and the Eastern Church. And thousand years, 1,500 years of church tradition and church worshiping, all contained in these two bodies. Um, but because of the Latin thing, because of, of, of uh, the lack of participation and the rise of mystery, people had started to forget that like communion and the sacraments were supposed to be about thanksgiving and remembering Jesus. And they became more and more about, this is what I have to do in order to be a part of the body of God. Like, I have to do this. I, I have to impress God with my with my attendance, with my participation. Um, I'm not saying that people weren't devout back then, but this is one of the things that contributed to this. So people, people focus on the mass and on the sacraments as a means to please God. Um, simultaneously, and I'm sure because people were still speaking in Latin, like, there was no message. So the Mass became all about taking communion and, and experiencing the part of the liturgy. And the, and the Word, so what we, go, what we went back to, like, where it was, the synagogues were Word, you know, and, and then the uh, words and the prayers, and then fellowship, the Word is taken completely out of the equation. You know, it's basically sacraments and... Um, fellowship is kind of encompassed in, in that now. So these reformers are just like, this can't, this is not, this is not scriptural. It's not, you know, Martin Luther, uh, Calvin, all these guys rise up and they're basically like, 
it's not scriptural. This is not the way the church is, is meant. And furthermore, people are like, people should have the mass in their own language. They should be able to go to church and understand what's going on. So um, the drive to have church uh, placed into your own language of origin, um, the focus on bringing back the word kind of drives this almost to the point where some reformers basically are like, you can't have music in church. You can't have images in church. You can't, um, anything that distracts from the word of God has to be eliminated. So like they swung back drastically the, the other way. Um, some of the reformers kept a lot of continuity with Roman Catholicism. Uh, the Anglican church, some of the Lutheran church, some other churches went like, we're just going as far away from Catholicism as, as we can get. Um, so you had a, a pretty, a pretty in, intense split there. Uh, after the Reformation, you also had this rise of what they call the free church movement, which is Baptists, Quakers, revivalists. Um, these are the first guys that really rejected written prayers. So up until this point, the church still relied on written prayers, and now they're like, no, 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 no. It can't be written prayers. It's got to be what's in your heart. You have to pray. You have to pray what's on your heart and in your mind at the time. So um, the Quakers and all these guys, they kind of had this movement that was all about rejecting the written, what, you know, all that tradition, and kind of just praying what your spiritual concerns were which is totally legit, but it's just, kind of a, it's just kind of interesting to think that this is relatively still a recent development in church history. Like the way we pray is relatively a recent development. Like we think it's always been that way, but it hasn't. The church relied on written prayers for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know? And so our first, I, I would probably say that most people in this room would say our first inclination is to say like, no, no, no written prayers. But I actually say, but then I go, but for a thousand years the church grew and men and women of God were dying in the Colosseums and being burned at the stake sometimes on the strength of faith that was born up sometimes through written prayers. So sometimes to stretch your faith legs a little bit, stretch your faith muscles, engage in a different form, investigate this stuff. You know, don't reject it all just out of hand because it's not the way we do things. There's, so finally, 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 we are at the 20th century. I mean, I just jumped 500 years or four, 300 years. But essentially the church kind of goes along and, and, you know, you have some people, uh, you know, the, the liturgy is still said in some churches, but then some churches get very, very free form. And we're going to focus... I, we're going to focus now on America, and from here, the remainder of the next two weeks, we're going to focus more and more on our, our worship, American, Western, E3, personal, et cetera, et cetera. So in uh, 1906, something really significant happens in um, Los Angeles on a street called Azusa Street. Does anybody know what happens? the Azusa Street Revival. And uh, this is a great, generally acknowledged as a great 
movement of God, and it's also generally acknowledged to be the beginning of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. What does that have to do with E3? Well, I'll tell you in a second. Um, like people were speaking in tongues, this thing took off. And I, if, if you're like me, and I'm a skeptic sometimes, I'm like, come on, is that, is that really legit? Who is getting, who's getting paid off that deal? Um, but biblical scholars typically, uh, or church scholars, typically look back at it and go like, no, like it was a legitimate movement of God. Like he just, for some reason, opened up the floodgates and things got really crazy for a while. But it was the beginning of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement. And um, the Pentecostal and charismatic movement is really characterized by uh, freedom, spontaneity, joy, and individual expression. And right then, like, that should be a, a pretty, like, somewhat of a clue. Like, if you were to walk into E3 versus a third century church, we would be a lot more Pentecostal and charismatic than we would be third century church because we emphasize, we allow that personal freedom. You have this great movement of the church from um, everybody's going to stand in prayers together, everyone's going to say things together, to this movement that's, that's uniquely American in the sense of like, hey, whatever's, whatever feels good for you, you just, just go for it, you know? And that's not a bad thing, but it is... It is just is what it is. It started out as an American moment. America is a very individualistic nation. And that's what comes naturally to us. It's what makes us great. And, and it reflects our, our church and our worship starts to reflect that. So uh, 1906, the Azusa Street revival happens. Um, worship becomes, in those traditions, um, not so much a corporate gathering but a gathering of, a corporate gathering of individuals doing whatever it is they want to do, which is cool. Um, then the last unique movement that really affects us is, it's got, it's called the praise and worship movement. It's such a really unsexy name. Um, but this is about 30 or 40 years old. And between between the Azusa Street thing and, and this era of church worship, this really describes where E3 is and where most you know, evangelical churches are, from Genesis to Calvary, you know, um, kind of still fall under this umbrella. The praise and worship movement um, arose out of this desire for intimacy with the Holy Spirit for the immediacy of an experience with God. Um, so you had this charismatics and, and tongues and, and being slain in the spirit, but these people were also just concerned of just like, I want that intimate connection with God. This is really typifi typo typified by the vineyard movement. If you're familiar with vineyard churches or vineyard mu music, this is their deal, you know, intimacy with God, intimacy with the spirit. Um, and it was also concerned with like informality like hey like just come as you are now if that's not e3 i don't know what is um it's it's really just like god will meet you where you're at um you don't need to dress up to come to church uh and then lastly like an emphasis on the music of the church needs to reflect the culture of the church 
So it's really like, no, like if you have a church of young folks, you should have young music. If you have a, you know, a, it's really demographically uh, oriented. This is a really, again, a very American thing and a very recent thing. And that's where, that's where we're, we're continuing to hone in on this thing of worship. Um, they also, for the first time, they separated praise and worship. That's why it's called the praise and worship movement. Now we talked about our definition of worship being worshiping for who God is and what he's done. Well, they kind of reverse those two things. And in a, in a praise and worship service, you start off by praising God for what he's done. And so, like, you, it's, it's basically focused on remembering the saving acts of God, just like we talked about last week. And after you've remembered who he's, what he's done for, for long enough, that brings up this sense of, like, I can worship him now for who he is. I've, I've, I've reminded myself of his goodness so much that now I can just focus on who he is. So, you know, I, I think it comes out of Psalm 95. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I can give you like the, there is like a, a specific psalm that divides it up that way, and that's kind of where they took their inspiration. So you praise God for, who he, for what he's done until it's time to worship him for who he is. And then... Uh, to go on, in this type of gathering, there's the word, so the teaching, and then there's sort of the intimacy part where you respond to what God has done and the desires to just kind of have a really kind of a good moment with God and kind of who the Spirit is. So that's 4,000 years of the worshiping church. Um, there's also, I mean, there's also renewal movements in liturgical churches and Catholicism, but again, like, I'm trying to focus increasingly on, on our, our tribe, uh, to, to kind of coin a phrase. And so, like, this is our tribe. Our tribe is born out of the charismatic movement, and it's born out of the praise and worship movement. And we have a lot of people who come from all kinds of different worshiping traditions, but the culture of E3 is, on a Sunday is that's what it is. Um, and we try to bring in other things from time to time, but that's our bread and butter. Um, but it doesn't just emerge like, it didn't emerge when Mark decided to start the church. Like it's connected and, and, and even the charismatic and the praise and worship movements are connected to everything before then. And even the fact that we still teach and we still teach the Bible, that goes all the way back to the synagogue, which goes all the way back to the exile, you know? So there's this great tradition of why we do things. And so what we're going to do now is, again, like, uh, it's pretty late, so I understand if you have to go, um, but if you want to kind of talk, there's a couple discussion questions there that are just kind of, um, just kind of designed to get you to process some of this stuff. Not next week, but the week after, we're going to spend a lot of time just kind of talking about, like, how... Um, kind of how the modern, this praise and worship thing, like what are the parts of a worship gathering that I kind of process through and that, that kind of exist to help us meet with God. So gathering groups of like three to five if you'd like and you talk about this stuff for a while. And uh, I, think there's, um, I think there's also something about um, just some... Did you shut me off? Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like I thought Trace just was like, God, stop talking. Um, um, but I, th- I put some prayers on there and some liturgy and, and like a liturgy. And like I said, you can Google this stuff and I just encourage you to kind of dig into it. The second page that was over there is a liturgy of like Jewish temple worship. 
So I thought it'd be interesting to you, just like that's kind of what they did um, in their worship in the temple. So, all right, meet up and uh, I guess we'll see you next week.